And we are live. Here we go. This is Harry Burton. Very kindly spending some time with me today talking about Harold Pinter. So if you don't mind, Harry, just uh, say that quote again just now. Is it beware of losing yourself within a mass consciousness? Is that, is that right? Yes. It's, I mean, it's not a quote. I was making it up. But, but okay. I, think, I, think, <laughs> I think it is something that one can take from Harold's work. Um, that anyone who signs their individuality, their personal freedom over to any kind of corporation um, is in danger of um, getting what they deserve. Mm. You see that in so many of the early plays. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, The Dumbwaiter, where they talk about the organisation, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people have speculated about what, what could they possibly mean, but it doesn't matter precisely what they mean. Mm. The point is that these two have given their them, themselves up, and, and now all, you know, I don't know if you know that play, but... Um, yeah, I do, I do. You know, um, Ben says to Gus, you know, look at me, look, look at me. I've got my woodwork, I've got my model boats. And that is supposed to be his, the life of his soul, you know? Mm. In other words, that, that when you give you that Harold's thing is when you when a person gives themselves up to a corporation for in order to have an identity and a sense of safety and a sense of belonging to something that they can hide behind, the the, the possibilities for a human being shrivel to the to the, the narrowest um, of options. Mm. And you know, lying on Hampstead Heath, looking looking at the stars, ain't ain't on the menu. You know, it's model boats and um, look at Paul Stanley in the birthday party. You know, he's He's walked away from another organisation um, who eventually come looking for him, which is p- partly what he's terrified of, because, you know, that's what I mean about paralysis. You know, you make a decision like deferring, mm. and then are you going to spend the next three years going, oh, what have I done? Have I done the right thing? Oh, fuck. You know, Stanley sent himself into a kind of nervous breakdown, a paralysis, mm. where nowadays he can't even get out of his pyjamas because he's he, he can't, trust that his instinct to get away from the organization was the right one consequently in some kind of kafka-esque way he is simply paving the way for them to come and find it because i mean harold's that's harold's that's that is harold's debt to kafka is the idea that um if you if you can't get out from underneath the oppressive structures that you've been born into you will be crushed by them Mm. yeah now if, if you then if we then think about um the caretaker, um, and especially Aston. Mm. The problem for Aston is that he was rebelling. He did kick up a fuss. He did say, you know, don't fucking tell me who to be, and they zapped his brain for it. So yeah, yeah. there are, you know, there are there are circumstances in which you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. Yeah, and that's exactly the razor's edge where Harold Pinter tried to live his life. Yeah, he did. And his his characters reflect that um, either either you you know look at Lenny in the homecoming I mean he's he, he seems to be pretty toxic he mm. seems to be running a, a, a running a, 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 a roster of girls up in up in Soho fine we can we can make a moral judgment about him for that but he's not going to, to um, an office every day to be a boring um, pen pusher or an accountant he may have to he may have to pay the pay the uh, Piper for for doing immoral things. We don't know. Mm. But even a character like Lenny seems to have embraced it, more of his individuality and you know um, 
and have a certain amount of freedom, even if it's to do things that you and I might choose not to do. But compared to Stanley, who is paralysed in a fucking boarding house at the end of the at the at the bottom of the south coast, where there's no, he's going to have to get in the channel if he wants to get away any further. Do you see what I'm getting at? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean. I was, there's a great, one of Harold's speeches, I think, to the Nobel, I think he won the Nobel Literature Prize back in 2005, I think it was, or whatever it was, a few years before he died, and he he had this incredible speech, I've listened to it, particularly about, he goes, it's, it's a vicious verbal attack, specifically on the political acts of the United States, and he talks about... Um, had the United States went into Iraq not just not just to get so-called weapons of mass destruction, but to go there and actually cause their own destruction themselves by destroying villages, by destroying people's livelihoods, innocent lives basically. And uh, he was, he told a story that he was invited to America to some sort of consult. I'm not quite sure what it was, but uh, an American political representative who was there went up to Harold and said to him, I really enjoyed your plays. And, and him in his Pinterest way just refused to answer. He, he completely blanked him. And uh, so there is, there is a lot of politicalness and that, you know, that's really interesting to hear uh, specifically about that. I remember seeing The Dumb Waiter, the, the production at the Hampstead Theatre just before we lost the theatres to Tier 3, just before Christmas. Uh, and I have to say, I left, that, I left the theatre with my jaw still on the floor because it that punch at the end that twist um, I walked out of the theatre genuinely thinking to myself how the hell was that the case and how was it and then away, I went away did some research and there was a lot of uh, talk about the like as you talked about just now the political aspect of it how there is someone sending the orders down from above so there's this hierarchical like the Prime Minister the Conservative government sending orders down and it's us as the population's ability just to not question it but just to do it you know and in that case it was coming down to form like food orders like like scampi or liver and onions or something like that and uh that was really interesting to see in there um and they're still the, the, yeah the, the, the two guys are still jumping through the hoops trying to you know make the right response yeah they're still, they're still saying, you know, oh, we better send something up. Instead of saying, fuck this, let's get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> they're fucking with our heads. Um, they're still being good corporate men. They're still being, you know, good little, um, good little sheep. Good little sheep, yeah. And, and sh- that's, it, that is Harold's point, isn't it? If you're, if, you're, yeah. if you're not prepared, if you're not prepared to be a fully human being, then look forward to um, the fate of a sheep, you know. Yeah, that's it. You may, you may well, you may well sign your own your own uh, death warrant. Yeah. Uh, did you did you manage to see um, Danny Dyer did a uh, documentary about working with Harold Pinter? He did it on... It was on Sky, I did see that. Sky yeah. Arts over Christmas. Yeah, I thought I really enjoyed it. Um, he, he touched on Pinter's political side as well and it, it cut to an interview with him on Good Morning Britain with, uh, with Piers Morgan at the time and he just quite clearly on national television television just went wait where's that twat david cameron why, why isn't he answering for anything else and you could see everyone going oh you can't say you can't say that but no but i you could tell he's he hung around with pinto you can tell he's got that that vibe about him to say no this is this system whatever this is this is a load of shit and that's, that's exactly why danny um why harold discovered Danny because Danny walked into an audition with Harold and went uh, you know you, know what, mate? <laughs> you, you didn't really 
know who Harold Pinter was, but Harold recognised that spark of, um, you know, individuality and, and so on. Yeah. Um, I think he said he reminded him of, Danny thinks that he reminded Harold a bit of himself growing up. I, I don't think there's any, any, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because Harold, Harold was a, he was a, he was a London boy, wasn't he? He grew up in, was it East London? Was it East London he grew up or was it? He, he grew up on the Bulls Pond Road in, um, in Hackney. In Hackney, yeah. So London boy, typical upbringing, uh, would have, I think his, I think someone made a very good point. Um, I think his, his early years, because he was a child of the war, you know, he would have been playing on bomb sites as a, as a young man. You know, he wouldn't have known that much. His early few years of London and where he lived was this complete desolation, this area of complete, you know, it was a country trying to rebuild itself from possibly one of the most horrific events that this country, let alone the world, has ever seen, Second World War. And do you think that having known Harold, you know, you were, not only did you work with him, but you're being a very close friend of his, uh, that that was, that that darkness, I think, well, I, I suppose you could call it darkness, or it could be this, this very low, very dark vibe about Harold's upbringing, that was something that stuck with him as a kid and therefore progressed into his adult life and into his plays. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Um, and I'd go further that, you know, we're all, we're probably all born with some mysterious sense of purpose that, um, that, that needs to be activated by a mixture of parents and education and teachers and life. Mm. And in Howard's case, you know, the thing that he was born with was, was a, um, the, 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 the sensibility of a poet. He was born like that. Mm. He started writing poetry at a very early age, 10, 11 years old. And the war and the de- destruction around him. And then, inevitably, because he was Jewish, the, the discovery of what had been going on in Europe in the camps and uh, with the Nazis and the, and the final the final solution, the so-called final solution, the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. All of that activated that poetic thing that was already in him in, in an incredibly um, particular way. And, and it, it took this form of... Um, a kind of passionate humanism, mm. which, which you know, particularly in later years, became a actual activism. He was prepared to sit on platforms and use his name, mm. but but all through his life, um, the the experience of being in the war, being evacuated, separated from his mum and dad when he was eight, nine years old, um, you know, uh, seeing houses on his street bombed out his own back garden burning one night from an incendiary bomb that landed wow. uh, the school that they went to, you know, Henry Wolf tells about how the school that he went to was wiped out by a flying bomb um, you know we, we have no I mean I'm, I'm 59 and, I, I, and until this pandemic I've never lived through anything that's affected everybody in, in this very um, quite traumatic and distressing way yeah me too uh, you know, my parents lived through, um, you know, Kennedy's assassination and mm. uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where where the Russians and Americans pointed nuclear weapons at each other. But it's nothing compared to what people at like Harold and Henry and my my mom and you know, or probably your grandparents, mm. you know, uh, what they lived through in terms yeah. of their actual lived experience. 
yeah. the trauma, the trauma of people uh, dropping ordnance from above to try and kill them. Um, you know, we, we get upset if someone drives a, drives a car at 30 miles an hour down, our, down the street, but <laughs> we've got nothing to compare uh, their, their, their experience to their yeah, experience. Nothing at all. But yes, Har- Harold was, Harold's uh, political sensibility was married to his poetic sensibility at a very early age because he knew, um, and the Jewish thing is very important in, in, in the education of that, uh, he knew how how badly human beings could behave, mm. and um, he did. I think he found it impossible to separate just because he wanted to write for for the stage. I mean, he didn't know he wanted to write for the stage until Henry said, "Why don't you write a play?" I mean, he'd had he'd had ideas, but it was Henry saying, "Write a play." I've got a theatre. That was. Until that point, Harold had always said, one day I might write a play. Mm. Um, but it, but it, my point is that there was no way that Harold could be a writer of any kind without including what you call that dark side, that darkness. Mm. And the knowledge, if, once, if you have that knowledge at the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, that there are people who want to kill you because you're Jewish, mm. or there are people who want to kill you because you're black or you know just extrapolate it into any any kind of blind prejudice and you see a lot of it in Pinter you see characters who are racist you see in the very first play the room you know the 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 black character who arrives um blind and black and he arrives and is murdered Mm. by a by a white racist thug so Harold was only too well aware of how of how um human beings could simply act out their most primitive and brutal urges mm. out of out of fear of something other, something different, um, something that they didn't understand or relate to because they're too uh, ignorant. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a, and you and you see it in these early plays. You see it more crudely expressed, and then. It's very interesting to realise in those later plays where he's writing plays that actually have politicians in them, mm. that it's become very subtle compared to you know a racist murder in the first play. Um, it's become about how how people with power uh, use and abuse language rather than actually you know kicking heads in. They get other people to do that for them. Um, the plays become about the the disgusting um, the kind of kidnapping of, of, of the, the power of language to, to um, conceal your true motives which are always in, in Pinter's plays are always to do with power and mm. the true motives of politicians to use and they, they use language to conceal what they are really doing and you know the, the current batch of I mean, if Harold, if Harold wasn't dead already, then then watching these Tories and, and Boris Johnson, <laughs> he, he'd have a fucking heart attack every day. <laughs> he would. Uh, he would be. Oh God, I, I can only imagine. You know, uh, just just slightly changing the subject slightly. I mean, uh, you know, just just the way that you know, actually, so on those lines there about this whole the whole government thing. You know, I think Harold has really woke, woken me up to. With particularly his plays of the political, just 
the vast nature of just how awful it is from from for, for years. Um, it's funny how it's kind of reverberating its way into sort of our lives in a way. We're waking up to it as well. Because I remember one night with my, my dad, we, we foolishly had one of those briefings on where they were um, like Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock, sorry, Matt Hancock come out and, uh, and uh, say, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that. And at the end of it, my dad just, he was, he was very quiet throughout most of these things. He, was, he, he walked in and as Matt was saying, okay, that's our briefing for today. Thank you very much. Dad just went, right, all done. Yeah, good. Sort of, Matt. We've got better things to watch than you. So, uh, and you know, it's funny how that's sort of coming out, really. But but more specifically with Pinter, is that there's, I think that there's an amazing quote of his which was, which I I know I'm not going to get right now. So just bear with me. I think this is I'll, I'll get as close to it as I can, where, where he says, uh, beneath the word spoken. Is the is the truth unspoken? Being unspoken, yeah. which I thought was fantastic. It's just fantastic, and as, and I suppose, do you think because of the nature of the, because politics is so, you know, clouded in in bullshit and just clouded in so much fake stuff, and we don't actually know what's going on behind the scenes. Is that why do you think Harold wrote in the way that he did? In the fact that we we have to do a lot of work to try and understand what it is he's actually talking about. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. He did grow up listening to a lot of uh, comedy on the radio, Mm. you know, back back in the 30s and 40s. Um, So there were outside influences. He also, you know, he fell in love with uh, gangster films, American gangster films, French films, Russian films. So he was, he was, he was very um, precocious. You know, he was reading and watching these films much earlier than than any of his friends. Mm. He was, you know, in libraries reading Dostoevsky and so forth in his, you know, in his early teens. Wow. Um, Be- you know, discovered Beckett and and so on. So he was exposed, and also because he read a lot of poetry and he read a lot of Shakespeare. Mm. still quite young mm. so he was kind of immersed in a, in a um, an awareness a very early awareness much earlier awareness than most of us have that you could use language in certain ways to say two things at the same time mm. now you know that's basically what we call irony isn't it irony uh, uh, I mean the meaning I take from the word irony is that there are two stories going on at once mm-hmm. so um he was very much aware from not least from reading things like Shakespeare Mm. that take Hamlet for example we know a murder has taken place because the the very first thing we see is is the ghost of Hamlet's father um, looking for Hamlet so he can say you've got to avenge my murder Mm. Right, so we've got Hamlet, who knows that something terrible has happened, but then we've got Claudius, his uncle, who is now king and married to his mum, mm. going around being a politician, saying everything's fine. What a pity that that chap died. <laughs> nothing to see How, here. Nothing to see nothing, here. Nothing to see. Nothing <laughs> to see. 
And Hamlet is busy turning to the audience and saying, these motherfuckers. Yeah. It's like... These, mother, these motherfuckers. Have you seen this? This is absolute crap. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then we get to watch Hamlet trying to change the outcome, trying to affect the situation. Now, he's got his own personal challenges mm. because he's, he's, unfortunately, he's very badly designed to be a revenge hero. Yeah. Um, but eventually he gets it going. You know, if he'd stabbed Polonius through the fucking arras a bit earlier, maybe <laughs> Hamlet would have lived to tell, he might have survived, you know, if he got, if he got his warrior mojo going sooner. Mm. But do you see what I'm saying? That, that the, the Harold would have read those stories and also, of course, the plays that he fell completely in love with, um, the plays of John Webster, you know, Duchess of Malfi, um, those plays which have incredible language in them. Mm. And and so he knew that language could do this thing of telling two stories at the same time. Mm. Um, and he and he also, I, I suppose, because of his own dark sense of humour. I mean, don't forget, he and Henry and most of the the, the guys that, that became the gang mm. were Jewish. They were most of them were Jewish. Mm. So there's a. I mean, they weren't they weren't Orthodox. They weren't wearing the clothes the whole time or going to synagogue. They had a certain kind of liberal um they had freedom but they knew that by being jewish whether they liked it or not they were targets so they used to go and wind up the fascists they would go along to the fascist meetings in the east end and they take a copy of you know baudelaire or um uh camus or, or you know um in order to basically intimidate these thugs and uh, who would then turn around and say oh you, what you read poetry do you poof mm. and, and and um you know wind them up mm. they were doing that you know at the age of 17 18 years old so obviously this am amused harold he saw from first experience hand experience that it that it had a very powerful way of winding other winding people up people who wanted to target him people who wanted to um, you know, uh, use race as a as a as a way of saying we are superior to you. Mm. They could be very easily wound up, and it it made them laugh. It made Harold and his mates feel powerful. I'm sure, I did. I'm sure, I did. But these people were so easily um, provoked and manipulated. Mm. A few times they got into fights, broken bottles, bicycle chains, um, you know, iron bars. Obviously, the worst didn't happen, but it was real. Yeah. So Harold knew that there was a line, and if you cross that line, you better be fucking careful. Yeah. But he wanted to walk that line rather than be cowed and rather than be told to shut up and, and uh, do as you're told. He, he refused and he insisted. So you see what I mean? Yeah. That irony, that sense of dramatic irony of making the audience... I mean, obviously, in Hamlet's case, he's telling the audience yeah. what 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 Harold began to do, which is called you know we call it modernism, is you know he took the direct address to the audience out like mm. Shakespeare, and he left it for the audience to fuck fuck figure it out, mm. work it out on your own. What what's really going on here? We're not going to tell you anymore. We're not you know we're, we we've got to go beyond that now. Mm. We, we you know we've we've now got. To the point where we've got to talk about life. The theater can the theater actually try to tell about life as it really is? Because when a character in, in Shakespeare, like Hamlet, turns to the audience and says, "Oh, what a fucking 
What a rogue and peasant slave. Rogue and peasant slave am I. It feels like real, like real life, but of course it's completely artificial in the sense that nobody ever turns to somebody else on a bus unless they're mad and starts uh, <laughs> telling, you know, speaking poetry. So Harold and the modernists, you know, um, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, all these, all these people that Harold, particularly the poets that he fell in love with, who were using language to try and break through to the, to the deeper truths, um, they started to basically say, um, we're not, we, we don't have any obligation to help the audience anymore. And we think that that way we can, we can actually tell more of the truth than the poetic thing of, of someone talking in soliloquies about how they feel. We're not going to talk about how we feel. We're not going to, we're, we're going to leave the audience entirely up, up to themselves to figure out um, what, what's really going on. As long as you, as long as the audience is intelligent and can listen for the clues, they will get there. Mm. But, but there are a lot of people who, who find metaphor and um, irony quite challenging. So, I mean, I directed The Dumb Waiter in the West End, like in 2006, I suppose. Mm. And, uh, you know, some of the critics said, um, I mean, this was a 50-year-old play, so it wasn't as if they hadn't had a chance to read it. <laughs> but some of the critics said... Uh, Oh, who is uh, who is Wilson? Who is this mysterious Wilson? Is Wilson God? You know, all this kind of horseshit. Instead of actually looking at, at what's on the page, which is to say that there is someone, as you said, there's someone in the hierarchy who's fucking with them. Yeah. Um, so people can still miss the point if they choose to. Yeah. And a lot of people do because with Pinter especially, a, a lot of critics and people who think that they're very intelligent don't like being made to feel uncomfortable. So what's Harold going to do? He's going to make them feel gonna... uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible. Do you know, that's, that's such an interesting insight into it. And I think that translates really well into the way that he conducted himself in the rehearsal room. Because over the, over the first lockdown, I listened to a few podcasts who, of people who actually worked with Harold, people like uh, Michael Sheen and Anna Massey and, and people like that. And uh, to some of the stories that you hear coming out of the rehearsal room, like he was almost saying to his actors as well as the audience, you need to work it out for yourself. Uh, <laughs> There's just a couple of stories, if I may. Uh, there was one brilliant one where, I'm not sure who it was, but an actor turned around to him in a rehearsal room and said to him, like, Harold, what, what's their motivation in this scene? What's their, what's their backstory? Where have they come from? And he brilliantly turned around and said, mind your own fucking business. <laughs> And, uh, well, and I can tell you who I, I can tell you who he said that to because uh, it's, oh. it, it, it's amazing to think of it. But I don't know if you've heard of him, but it, he the actor was Alan Akeborn, who became no, one of the most no way. <laughs> one of the most successful playwrights of all time. But no, Alan Akeborn was you know a young actor playing Stanley in the Birthday Party, which Holy Harold was moly. directing the second ever production of the Birthday Party. Wow, I'll send you. I'll send you a little document which which will oh, tell yeah. you the whole story. Please do. But yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, these story. I know all these stories because, of course, I've I've told them myself to so many workshops and classes. Mm. Um, but uh, Harold would help if he could. Yeah. But often there was a point where he actually would. He felt it was more truthful to say, "Look, the author has no further information at this point." Um, you know, I can give you, I can give you a, my own take on it, but if you want to know chapter and verse, I don't have it. And he meant that. You know, he was being genuine. Mm. He wasn't. He wasn't. 
he wasn't um, obscure for the, for the sake of it. Mm. It was just because he believed that his characters had their own life and their own volition. And yeah. the, everything you needed to know about the character was on the page. You just had to adapt your... You just had to listen more acutely or, and this is from an acting point of view more interesting, mm-hmm. accept the, the ambiguity and live with it. Mm. Now, what does that mean in practice for an actor? You know, when you, you've rehearsed a play and you come to that bit in, in the play where you still aren't sh- exactly a 100% positive what a line means or what, or what you're doing to the other character at that moment. How do you coexist with that ambiguity and still feel like you can give your best performance? Mm. That's, a, that's a wonderful, wonderful challenge it is. for an actor. It is. Because the truth is you can coexist with, with that ambiguity, but you first got to surrender to that ambiguity rather than feel that there can surely only be one way to play the line. Mm. It's also so when, you big... work with, when you work with, a, I'll say one more thing, yeah. when you work with a writer like Harold, you might do two, three, four weeks rehearsal and still come into the, the previews and the press night and think, well, I don't know, I, I, I do my best with that line, but you might have three, let's say three different ways you could play that line and they all work. Mm. And the director says, they all work. And your other character, your other actor says, I love all three when you do all three. So which do you play? Well, there's two, there's two ways. Either you can plan it or you can trust how it comes out on the night and that that's enough. And the latter, re- the latter strategy is the most exciting because that then you're really, truly being present for the moment rather than uh, over-controlling um, the, 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 the delivery and the way the audience receive it. Let the audience work it out for themselves. Let yourself be free to go with the, the impulse as, as you feel it on the night. And that's a great, great... That is why Harold is so exciting from an acting point of view. Mm. Because as an actor, you find that you have to learn to trust yourself more um, and let go of trying to be perfect, trying to get it right. Now, that's only a, a, a writer who has been an actor can could pay you that compliment, I think. Yeah. No, I, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say that that's such a... A liberating thing like you could go to rehearsal room and think okay well because actually I think if you think of it that way some actors go into rehearsal rooms like don't they've done all this really intense research and like okay this point I need to be like this this point I need to be like this but if you go into Harold's rehearsal room it's just so it's it's like just just play it as you want to play it and uh, I think there was a story I, I listened to I think Charlie from Runner Head Shouting uh, suggested a podcast that uh you, oh, I can't remember who you did it with, but it was, it was, it was with Douglas, um, who who had played, who had done quite a few of Harold's. Oh, Doug Hodge, Douglas Hodge. Douglas Hodge, that's it. Uh, and uh, he he told this brilliant story about him getting in a rehearsal room. Of you know, you were there, you heard it, but uh, of saying he said to Harold, look, look, I'm just going to throw this out there. Okay, I think it could be this. I think it could be this. It could be this. And the motivation is this. Motivation is that. And he went. Sounds good. <laughs> it gave absolutely nothing away. And, you know, I think at first, it's just there's a frustration there to sort of say, no, no, but I need to get it right. Well, Howard's saying, no, you don't. You don't need yeah. to get it right. Just live off the impulses. And again, was it Henry Wolf said, again in that podcast, he said, um, 
for someone who approaches Pinto for the first time, what would you, what advice would you give? And he said, play it down the middle of the pitch, <laughs> or something like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, but just, just. It's cr- cricket um, metaphors work very well with with Pinto. Hmm. Uh, not least because um, Pinto was absolutely mad about cricket, and and therefore it was completely natural to him to to see things. And he loved sport generally, you know, combat on the field, like. He loved squash, he loved tennis, he loved ping pong. Uh, he was a sprinter, he was a centre forward. He loved the whole competitive thing. And um, it's very easy as an actor to try and put one's own special spin on a line of Pinter. Mm. Um, and that's fine, but and it's fine to, to try that test the lines that way but actually Henry's point which I've you know always to, uh, taken to heart is better to um, listen to the rhythm of the line listen to the, the sound of the line rather than overthink them the the very particular special meaning that only I could bring to the line mm. um, that rhythm and that music and that sound um, especially the sounds of the language, the actual sounds you make, the vowel sounds and the consonants and the combinations of sounds, and you know, repetition is so much a part of Harold's writing because he's, mm. you know, he's, he has certain poetic techniques that he uses again and again and again, and those are so much more to do with the with the fact that the meaning of the line comes out of the sound. Mm. Um, the meaning of the line has a has a dimension which is more than the actor can do on his or her own by thinking. You, you can release the, 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 the bigger dimensions of Pinter by paying more attention to rhythm and sound. And um, that's why they, that's why Henry says, play the ball straight back down the pitch. <laughs> because if you do that, then the possibility of the other dimensions being released is, is more um, possible. Mm. Uh, if you try and do all the work to the line, then actually um, you might well not be able to release the, the, the bigger uh, poetic dimensions mm. and it's you know the, the best Pinter productions are the ones where both both these dimensions are operating at the same time mm. uh, the, the invisible the below the line the subtext the sound the rhythm the, the music all quite subliminal and then yes the surface the, the actual words themselves the sense um, the communication the desire, the want of the character, and all those good acting things that we that we want. So it's a combination, and the outcome then is is a, a whole that contains much more than just uh, the sum of its parts. You know. Mm. Cool. Yeah. When you if you ever if you ever watch the the film, the best example of all this is the film on YouTube of oh, yeah, Gil, John Gielgud and Ralph Richardson doing No Man's Land. Oh, what a what a performance from both of them. Because they they're the two probably the greatest ever actors or among the very greatest ever actors who could actually bring a poetic sensibility to their own delivery it was their own nature as actors yeah so when that technique meets harold's poetry you really see how how it can be yeah and how the sounds of things have bring so much extra life to um, to the lines yeah. and then there are other things like you know aston's speech or uh, ben and gus and the dumb waiter it's very monosyllabic. It's almost machine gun like. It's staccato. Um, it's very short sentences. 
so with Harold, you get you get the whole range of um, musical possibility. Like, but you know, he loved the music of Bach, um, mm. and Bach can be incredibly lyrical, or he can be unbelievably aggressive and um, punchy and um, staccato and like a machine gun. So you get it all with Harold. You get it all. Mm. That's that's incredible, and I just. I'm just curious actually because we, we've we've spoken quite a bit about the as you said the subtext and the blurring of you know like reality and you know, figure it out for yourself kind of thing, but I think there's there's a moment in the caretaker with Mick towards the end where he just where he smashes the Buddha, and he just goes on this unbelievably fiery speech to Davis saying that's what I want I've got other things to worry about I've got this error and I've I've often wondered um, is that a moment where do you think for a brief moment we get a Pinter character in its entirety like we see a fully a fully blown a, a, the real side of a Pinter character in that brief moment albeit it's very brief because then immediately after it's over it's like like zips himself back up and like and it's like no more no more but for that brief moment do you think we get an insight into not only just mix in a monologue but I think Pinter's own in, in a monologue as well just for that brief moment I think that's a very uh, a very plausible. I'm just looking for the. I'm just looking for the speech. It's, a, uh, it's Act Three, and uh, oh. and it's after Mick, uh, not Mick. Uh, David says, "Oh, your brother, he's, he's nutty. He's nutty." I find the, um, uh, the of the Buddha. I've got it. I've got a different. So for me, it's on page one hundred and nineteen. I'm not sure if you've got a similar one. I've got the Faber and Faber copy. It's after Mick talks about Sid Cup. He talks. So, so you're oh, violent. Hang on, I found it. I yeah, found you're it. You're violent. You're erratic. And then he's like, "All right, then you do that. You do it if that's what you want." And then Mick goes, "That's what I want." Anyone think this house was all got to worry about? I've got plenty of other things to worry about. And of course, it's this, this you know, as Pinter says passionately, it's that for this brief moment we get an insight into what a Pinter character is all about. And it's a very rare, very brief sight. So I think it's something to be treasured in Pinter. So we get all this distortion, distortion, but then suddenly we get, okay, this is what it's all about. And then that's what makes it. And I think as an audience member, especially because I remember seeing George Mackay do this at the Old Vic a few years ago. And particularly in that moment, I was holding on to my seat. I was thinking, what the flipping hell is going on here? And it's just the truth came out in a way would you would you agree or or something else i do agree i i i i i think it's i think it's very local to mick at that point Mm. um i mean i'm not saying that uh there isn't something being expressed in that speech that isn't universal of of um there might be some some of Harold in, in, in that sense of uh, a sudden kind of volcanic eruption of mm. he, he snaps in that a, 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 a snapping a snapping out of um, trying to dress things up and make things pretty and keep things nice mm. but 
it seems to me that that it's particular to to Mick because so much of Mick there's so much frustration in that speech because of what Mick has to consider because of his brother mm. you know his ambition that amazing speech about the, the the decorating and how he'd like to have how he'd like to to um, kit the house out in all these amazing textures and fabrics and things how does he know how does he know all that well you know yeah. he's clearly got amb- ambitions yeah. creative ambition he's, a, he's an intelligent bloke he's an intelligent he's, bloke. he's intelligent and, and, and he he fancies himself as somebody who can do these things mm. but how much of that is he actually going to get to do while he's got to look out for um for his bro so you know he's he's caught in a bind he's bound by responsibility and commitment and limitation mm. now i think that's where the universality is is that you know harold didn't didn't enjoy the feeling of having his wings clipped mm. at all um and harold found it very difficult to express his emotions directly you know he just found he found the vulnerability of saying how he felt very tricky um he often run out for a man of such amazing control of words he he would run out of words where it came to actually trying to express how he felt about things he was and the point about that is that he felt he felt things very deeply now i think mick feels things very deeply he's brilliant at keeping a, a kind of surface energy of repartee and banter and so he's very good at that he's mm. very good at bullying the tramp oh very good um, very good and and victim victimizing the tramp but that's the thing about people who victimize other people are doing so because there's something very uncomfortable going on inside them yeah. so they're trying to get that out and inflict it on someone else because it's it's a feeling of release and, and relief if you can um, affect someone else with how with the the confusion that you're um, feeling inside mm. um, so I think yes it relates to the the immense difficulty that particularly men have trying to talk about their feelings. And that certainly is true of Harold. Mm. And yes, I think you're right. I think your, your physical, the little mind you did of, of someone being unzipped and then suddenly zipping themselves back up and mm. then everyone else going, what the, f- what just, why the, f- what the <laughs> fuck just happened? Yeah. Who was that guy? Yeah. What? Um, what this I think that's a very interesting and, uh, and I, t- yeah, I totally, totally agree with you Mm. um harold of course would would always insist that that was mixed situation not harold's situation Mm. because he harold was very resistant to the idea which critics have always you know tried to do um of turning his plays into autobiography Mm. you know that everything that happens in a pin to play must have happened in real life at some point of course that really isn't no. remotely the case it, no, no, it's no. Harold's imagination is simply off the charts yeah it's... but there are certain things and, and I think that the frustration and the um, the feeling of having your wings clipped being being so uncomfortable and yeah. so enraging um, you know I mean Harold got married very young uh, he was a father very young he was therefore he had responsibility very young and he, you know he, there was still a part of him that was wild and wanted to drink and womanize and um not have to be you know uh a responsible person he wanted to live out 
all kinds of fantasies, which he did, you know, he had many affairs and his marriage broke down and his son wouldn't talk to him. And, you know, he fucked, he fucked a lot of stuff up, mm. which unfortunately um, a lot of us do because... Yeah, we all do, yeah. Until, until we, until we realise that, that fantasies are fantasies, um, but a lot of us only learn by, by trying to act those fantasies out and then having to deal with the, the real consequences of it. Mm. Is that, but that yeah many many times in in Pinter that that's what's going on characters are think of betrayal you know uh, Jerry the one who's having the affair he's and that's after Harold's had a long affair himself and his own marriage is broken down he's actually trying to look take a really hard look at what happens when a human being says I can do that I'm, I'm entitled to do that I can I can I can betray my wife with this other beautiful woman because I need to. I need to. I need to have two women. I need to be. I need to be with her. And yes, I'm already with her. But I mean, someone's going to get upset at some point. But it's the oldest story in the book. Mm. Um, and even Aston, you know. I mean, Mick is trying to live out the fantasy of doing this house up. Mm. He's trying to make that real. He wants that to, to become real. He wants to be as sophisticated as he sees other people being, owning properties, being a man about town, having a way with decoration, having a style, having status, having a bit of money, having a bit of, you know, je ne sais quoi about you. Mm. And he's, he's being frustrated because he's not being able to really make that happen the way he wants to. And I don't know what what was Aston, what was Aston doing, kicking off in the cafe when they when they called the police on him, and it all led led one thing led to another, and he ends up in a fucking mental hospital, mm. having all that done to him. It's these moments, and, and I'm sure Harold was fascinated by these moments in your in your life where you have a choice, and if you if you take the wrong choice, it can have, it can have a terrible and lasting consequence for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, one of the things about Harold is that he attracted I'm going to send you this um, story that Alan, about Alan Aitborn yeah. uh, doing the birthday party where yeah. uh, you know this is like 1959 in, in Scarborough up north but Harold would attract crazy people um, people would come up to Harold and tell them his story tell them their story and Harold wouldn't would be like that's just an amazing story you just told me. And people were, were attracted to Harold. They didn't know it, but they would come up to him and say, you know, can, can I tell you my story? And um, he, he knew how insane being a human being can be mm. because people, people um, unburdened themselves to him and told him this wacky, far-out stuff. Incredible, incredible. I, I, I just it's such I feel a bit envious of yourself the fact that you you spent so many years working and know knowing a pincer on a personal level as well and unfortunately I'll I'll never have that experience well, if there is something after afterwards then maybe so but uh, but well that's why I do what I do yeah um, I feel I feel an, an obligation a happy obligation oh, of course to sh to share the privilege that I had um, of not only working with him but also having a, 
a very long friendship. I mean, without question, it was the most important. I mean, all right, my, my wife is pretty special, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, there's you know, Peter being, being, and his wife. <laughs> being, well, being, being friends with Harold as a man, as a young man, and then, you know, yeah. um, that friendship lasted from the time I was 18 until he died. So wow. um, he died in 2008, so that's already 10, 14 years ago. So... Crazy. A, a friendship of well over 25 years, or 25 years or more. Mm. Um, not always as close as it was towards the end. We got closer and closer as we got older. But that's why I do what I do. Because he's... He's... Without, without ever trying to be a teacher, the way that he approached working with actors, working with in theatre, uh, trying to create really exciting moments of theatre. He, 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 he is as good as, as anybody else has ever been. Mm. And the, the fact that he just didn't care about the status quo he decided to shake up the snow globe and just really did that um, well he didn't he didn't decide to do that that's who he was so he was yeah, yeah. he never made a de- he never made a decision to I'm going to change the world he just said I can only write the way I see and feel things mm. um, it's it's historians and academics who then say uh, well of course you know he was part <laughs> of the angry young men or he was an absurdist Harold, the one thing that Harold hated more than anything else was being labelled. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Just, uh... but, but that's what academics and historians do for a living. So, And journalists, too. Yeah. You know, all through the 1960s, the, the Daily Mail called him the Jewish playwright. What must have made him feel ins- in, in, insane. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's the point. He wasn't trying to change the world. He was doing what... The only thing he could do was, which was, try and get his voice out. Yeah. The way he saw the world, try and get that on the page, in as economic and fully fully realised a way, and then say to actors, "You make of that what you can." Mm. Incredible. He, he didn't. He didn't. He never had that. Um, you know, David Hare's got it a bit. That kind of arrogance of, well, I'm I'm part of a very important movement in the theatre and. You know, Harold never had that. He had, he had an amazing kind of humility. He also could be a pain in the ass and a prick because he was <laughs> terrible. He, you know, he, he drank, but um, oh yeah. But but truth, tr- the truth is, he he was astonished by his own life and the way it went. He he was like continually um, amazed to find himself so successful. Um. He never lost that kind of quite young, quite kind of adolescent kind of feeling of going out in the world and saying, come on then, fucking, I'll take you on. He never lost that. Good. But he never knew how it would go. He never knew it would be like, you know, it would go his way. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably the most important thing of all is that he wrote his plays and, and, and all the work he did, not from a place of, you know, look at me, I'm, I can swagger it with the best. It, it was actually, you know, this is all I can do and I'm doing it the best I can. I have no idea if it's really um, any good or not. He liked, he liked his own work. 
Yeah, and that's that, that that above all else is the most important thing that you enjoy what what you do, and yeah. you know, don't give a, a cuss as to what anybody else thinks. Exactly, yeah, you're right. And uh, yeah, yeah, this this has been great. Um, I just I, I'm just curious to know actually, is it true that, that Danny Dyer mentioned this in this documentary that he would sometimes for rehearsals he would show up and sit down at his table and have a glass and a bottle of red wine. And the rehearsal would last as long as the bottle of wine did. <laughs> well, I, I think that was more coincidental than planned. Um, but uh, and it was always white wine, by the way. But uh, oh, it was white wine. I love my best. Uh, but um, he certainly didn't mind people seeing him drinking in rehearsal, mm. and he liked to have a drink by about you know. Uh, about noon on most days he'd have a bottle open I mean he'd, he'd probably polish off three or four bottles of white wine or champagne during the, I mean until he was 50 he drank he just drank spirits he drank brandy and whiskey wow and the doctor said to him listen you're gonna fucking kill yourself so he switched to um, to wine, wine and wine. champagne <laughs> but he drank it in great quantities I mean amazing uh, it's also true you know that, that quite often rehearsing with him was not as rigorous in terms of just sheer hours. Sometimes, you know, he would rehearse only in the mornings or only in the afternoons, three hours, four hours. You know, that wasn't just so that he could drink. I mean, he was alcoholic. He was. He was alcoholic. He died of liver failure. So that's, there's no getting away from the fact that that's an alcoholic death. But um, yeah. it was because he didn't feel that over overworking, he wasn't a workaholic. He He, he didn't, believe that relentless working and more working was in itself a good thing you know sometimes with his plays particularly I mean I tended to work on the later ones with him but they were quite subtle and um, overworking it could be counterproductive so yeah sometimes the sometimes the rehearsal would, would appear to last as long as the bottle but I, I think it was it was as much to do with the fact that he was trying to judge what the right level of uh, intensity was and that you could overplay the intensity and people get exhausted and a bit dispirited and a bit kind of um, a bit jaded. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about, about working on Pinter, Pinter's work, as you probably know, is it really tests your relationship with yourself. You know, if you're beating yourself up when you're doing a Pinter play, mm. you know, I'm not getting it right. I, I, why can't I be better than this? What's wrong with me? You know, all that stuff doesn't help at all. No. It it's really a process. Doesn't. You have to trust the, the creative process. And it will um, always see you through the creative process. Mm. That's the one thing I've learned over 35 years or so of, of doing all this is that it, as long as you understand the creative process, um, it will always see you through. Mm. But there's, there's, a, there's a bit of the creative process where you descend into the unknown. Oh, definitely. And then, and then you have to, then you find out what your relationship with yourself is really like. Yeah, it's because you know yeah. you need a bit of you need a bit of self coaching to get back to get out of there. It will be okay. You know? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, that's what I look forward to. I think going back to training again in, in October, and I think more than anything, and of course in, in life in general, you know, if you know if something didn't go right, you know, it's fine, it's done, it's in the past. You made a fool out of yourself, okay that's fine we've all done it we've all been there we've all made fools out of ourselves but we learn from it and we move on and that's it were, were you specifically uh, looking at that 
at the Aston speech or I was um, yeah I, mean, I was hoping to to show you actually but I'm just I'm, I'm very aware of the time but uh, I would love to show you at some point if 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 you've got time now or I'll do it but we can do this another time if if you if you have stuff to do well if you if you've if you've got it with you and, and you just want to um, go for it without putting any great pressure on yourself but, yeah. but you know um, I, I'm very happy to just listen uh, yeah sure I mean if, if yeah that'd be great actually if you wouldn't mind yeah that'd be good well I, I, you know if that's partly what you need then why why, why don't we do that yeah absolutely um, I've I've, I've pretty much got it in my head now, but I'm just going to have it to my side here, just in case. Just, in just case. read it. Don't, don't put any pressure on yourself. Okay, I'll just I'll read it. That would be easier. Okay. Here we go. About a week later, they start. Sorry, do you want me to do it with an accent, or do you want me to do it in my own voice? That's entirely up to you. I do it. I do it with my own voice without much. No, own voice or no. I'll be practicing with an accent. I'll do it with an accent. I'm doing it. About a week later, they started to come round and do this thing to the brain. We're all supposed to have it done in this ward. And they came round and they did it one at a time, one a night. I was one of the last. And I could see quite clearly what they did to the others. They used to come round with these... I don't know what they were. They looked like big pincers with wires on. The wires were attached to a little machine, it was electric. They used to hold the man down... And this chief, the chief doctor, used to fit the pincers, something like earphones. He used to fit them on either side of the man's skull. There was a man holding the machine, you see, and he'd turn it on. And the chief would just press these pincers on either side of the skull and keep them there. Then he'd take them off. They'd cover the man up and they wouldn't touch him again until later on. Some used to put up a fight, but most of them didn't. They just lay there. Well... They were coming round to me and the night they came, I got up and I stood against the wall. They told me to get on the bed and I knew they had to get me on the bed because if they did it while I was standing up, they might break my spine. So I stood up and one or two of them came for me. When I was young, I was younger then. I was much stronger than I am now. I was quite strong then. I laid one of them out and had another one round the throat and suddenly this chief had these pincers on my skull and I knew he wasn't supposed to do it while I was standing up. That's why... Anyway, he did it. So I did get out. I got out of the place. But I couldn't walk very well. I don't think my spine was damaged. That was perfectly all right. The trouble was, my thoughts had become very slow. I couldn't think at all. I couldn't get my thoughts together. I could never quite get it together. The trouble was, I couldn't hear what people were saying. I couldn't look to the right or to the left. I had to look straight in front of me because if I turned my head round, I couldn't keep upright. And I had these headaches. I used to sit in my room. That's, that's when I lived with my mother and my brother. He was younger than me. And I laid everything out in order in my room, all the things that I knew were mine, but I didn't die. The thing is, I should have been dead. I should have died. Anyway, I feel much better now. But I don't talk to people now. I steer clear of places like that cafe. I, I never go into them now. I don't talk to anyone like that.
I've often thought about going back and trying to find the man who did that to me. But I want to do something first. I want to build that shed out in the garden. And scene. <laughs> beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. It's a wonderful speech. It's, it's... Well, uh, so I'm going to give you sort of just some general impressions and feedback. Yeah, go ahead. Firstly, uh, you, you do naturally have, you do have a, a natural sense for the rhythm of it, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not everyone does, uh, but you do. It's not a particularly poetic speech, is it? It's, no. it's, very, it's very nuts and bolts. But the fact is, most of the time, all of the time, as far as I can hear, you, you were, not, obviously you were making sense of it, but there is a certain way to, to observe the rhythm naturally, mm-hmm. whereby you don't misstress things or you, you put, the st- put the stress on the right words. And I think you didn't really put a foot wrong in that. I know you're just reading it, but you didn't put a foot wrong. And, and that's a great, that's very reassuring to know that your natural response to it is, is in the, the natural rhythm that, that it's written in. Mm. Um, See, what that then does is, I mean, I know that, I know that speech quite well, I suppose. Um, I was on stage with Colin Firth at the National Theatre Memorial when Colin did it. And he hadn't, it was 15 years since he played the part. And he, he got up and sat in a chair and everyone just, everyone just wept, you know, because, I mean, Colin isn't everyone's idea of, uh, of a pinter actor, but he's a wonderful actor. Mm. Um, so the, the power of the speech is, is beyond question. But listening to you doing it, I heard things that I, that I really felt I hadn't noticed before. And that's so interesting. And the things that I hadn't noticed before were things like, I mean, obviously, I, I, I'm fully aware, as you are, of anyway, he did it. The silence before anyway, he did it. In that silence, there's a, an entire universe of pain and um, rage and powerlessness and he's talking about there being a physical big physical fight Mm. and him being overpowered and generally he's played by quite a big fella Mm. Uh, you know he's a Robert Shaw um, the film you know and and Harold always said that Robert Shaw was very much his idea of of Aston you know he's a big powerful guy so the idea of that guy being subdued by medical orderlies or heavy heavies in a, in a, a mental hospital. It must have been a terrible, terrible struggle. Mm. And then all Aston says about it is, anyway, he did it. Mm. So, so the silence contains all of that. Um, so that I, I, I knew about. But there, were, there was something that I really felt that I hadn't taken before. And that was to do with still living at home the brother being young, living with the mother, I laid out all my things, mm. but I didn't die. And that, what that suggests to me is that, is that after the lobotomy, he contemplated suicide, that he actually planned to kill himself, mm. went through some kind of, um, mm. you know, laying all his things out is a kind of uh, signature of someone preparing to leave this world sort of like the last farewell in a way like a ritual like a pre-death ritual 
Yeah. But you that you you get all your things out, especially if you know if you're struggling as he was after the operation to I mean he says, you know, he couldn't he couldn't look to the left or right because it unbalanced him. So he, obviously the operation profoundly impaired his physical ability, his physical sense of himself. And what what I got from listening to, to you then was that he he found that completely unacceptable and intolerable and therefore planned to end his life. But I didn't die. He says it, I, but I didn't die. Hmm. I, I never really, I never really heard, I felt like I heard that for the first time. <laughs> so that tells you how sensitive he is. Hmm. How, incredibly. This, how distressed he must have been. How he must have felt his life was over. And all of that has to inform the whole story of Aston through the play, yeah. not just this speech. Yeah. But it's got to be the, the underpinning of absolutely every moment on, on stage because he's chosen to live. He could kill himself. Yeah. Anyone can kill themselves. Just go to a fucking, uh, go to a bridge and throw, go to a motorway bridge and throw yourself off, go to a, a railway line and get, get yourself in front of a train. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end it. But, he's, but he didn't die, and he's in some way had to try to reconcile himself to being like this. Mm. I used to be like that. They did that to me. Now I'm like this. And at one point, I may have wanted to die, but I didn't die. Mm. So in everything he does, he's carrying, he's carrying with him both who he used to be when he was all right and and who he has had to accept that he is now and continue living now that's that's a how do you act that well you can't you can't act it you can only be it you can only find a way of being that is an adaptation of you yeah. that nevertheless can invite in the the feeling that even though adam the actor oh, sorry um, oliver the actor hasn't had those experiences himself that you can imagine what it might be like to have had those experiences and to and to carry them wherever you go um and the other lines that 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 he says uh which are so telling and important in this respect is you know for example i could never quite get it together Mm. that's Um, that's really that's a powerful line, I think. It's it's incredibly telling, isn't it? Yeah. And also, I had headaches. Yeah. So he's got loss of balance, disorientation, headaches. Um, he's been suicidal. He's chosen not to die. Maybe maybe he maybe he had to be resuscitated. Maybe he took maybe he tried to hang himself, but but they found him and they cut him down. Or maybe he took pills. Or we don't know. That's all for you, the actor, to, to decide. But the fact is, you've somehow got to connect to, to these possibilities in imagination and then adapt your being so that Aston can come through you in some way. Mm. But, but, the, but, it's, but these physical things are the, probably the key. That the mental things will come out of finding a way of being slower, of finding a way of being restricted in, in your movement of finding 
a way to embody needing to keep your eyes straight ahead so that you don't get that wobbly feeling of, oh, fuck, I'm going to fall over if I, if I look too quickly to the right or left. Mm. Um, to root it in the physical rather than root it in how do I say these lines, how do I make the lines mean everything that they could mean. To actually go, go through a, a more grounded, maybe using some of your larbum, you know, to, to imagine the physical consequences of everything he's been through and then begin to let the lines connect to that. Because if you don't, I mean, George Mackay for me was a bit kind of 50-50. Oh, yeah. but, Danny, but Danny Mays, I thought he was beautiful. Mm. I thought he absolutely found a way. Mm. Quite a radical way. I'd never seen an, an Aston before who had a big limp. Do you remember mm. the way Danny was yeah. moving himself around the stage? Yeah. He almost was dragging that leg behind him. Yeah, it was. It was big. It was big. It was a big limp. <laughs> it was very theatrical. I'd never seen anyone do it that so theatrically. If you look at Robert Shaw in the film, it's minimal. It's very subtle. Very, very it's subtle. It's very subtle. Both, both ways work. Yeah. Maybe one works better for film and one works better for theatre. Mm. But, but nevertheless, there is a huge um, uh, connection to the physical world of the character and a trusting that the lines will then connect to that and come through that. Mm. Um, but I thought you read it very, very well. And obviously, the, the pace, the, the, not the speed so much, but the pace... I thought you played the pauses and the silences very well, but um, you're obviously under no obligation to be in a hurry. Mm. You really can take your time. It mustn't become so slow and broken up that it becomes self-indulgent, or um, it, and most of all, it mustn't be sentimental. Mm. Which you know you didn't for a minute go down that road. But there are okay. people who who and maybe it would be a good road to explore as part of the rehearsal process. Mm. But ultimately, Harold doesn't want these lines to be played for pity or for um, or for sentiment. He doesn't want the audience feeling sorry for Aston. No, no. You want the audience thinking, how the hell would I deal with this? How would I deal with them forcing me to wear these pincers and then putting electric current through my brain? You want you want the audience to see Aston as a mirror and catch their own reflection. Hmm. Yeah. So that they would consider that their own relationship to, you know, their bodies, and you know, thank, thank, fuck, I'm fully, fully present, and that, that is. I mean, another way of saying that, I suppose, is that is that Ashton, Aston can well can very much be played as somebody with with a tremendous deep courage. Mm. It's it's courageous. I think one thing I get from this conversation is that the strength of him to he's been through this unbelievably traumatic experience and he could have just thought you know what i can't live with this just jump in front of a train and just have it over with but for him to say okay look let's just try and reconcile this just let's just forgive myself for what's happened forget about what what this some idiot or this this evil man did to me in this mental home and just let, let, let's just try and make my life better and the fact that he's just doing something as simple as that the strength in that the mental strength and the physical strength as well just to carry on whether it was with a Daniel May's long limp or Robert Shaw's little limp I think is unbelievable courage and I think with Douglas Hodge even suggested he was a, a saint in some ways that he, he was 
he has a saintly figure. I mean, we're not saying he's perfect, but the fact that he's been through all, like, you know, Christ on the cross, you know, he's been through this and yet still finds a way to forgive. And it's, Well, I think yeah. that, I, I love hearing Doug talk about that. I really did. It was very enlightening. But another thing I got from listening to you was um, Aston must also, I think, believably be capable of going and finding that guy and breaking his neck. I think he would. I think he'd like to do that. I think he would. So that's not so saintly. <laughs> no, 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 he's not perfect. I'm not saying he's yeah. perfect, but um, he has courage, but he's not perfect. So. He, he's still capable of going to a place in himself that is profoundly um, dark and, and destructive. Mm. So it's complex, you know, it's really complex. It is. And, and it's also um, the fact that he says, but, but I want to do something first, and it's all about the shed. Um, that's also potentially pathetic because um, he can't even change a fucking plug on a, on a, on a piece of flex. So you know, he spends the whole play trying to do this damn toaster plug. So how the hell is he ever going to put a shed up? Mm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> well, there's a wonderful sequence, you know, that Harold wrote just for the film where they go out, him and Alan Bates go out in the garden mm. and there's a little pond and they just stare into the pond in the garden. And, and then um, there's a shot of, of some wood just stacked up against the fence or uh, just sitting in the garden. Yeah. And, you know, you can see Alan Bates looking at him thinking, mate, if you ever get that shed together, I'm going to buy you a pint. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's complex. It's really yeah. complex. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realise Harold's wrote that just for the film. Just, just well, of course, because there's, there's no exteriors in, in the play. Yeah. But anything that's, anything that's exterior in that film is written into the screen, the screenplay of a movie. Mm. And I, I recommend, um, I think you can probably find it on YouTube. Yeah, so the whole thing's on YouTube, yeah. The whole yeah, thing. but look, uh, what I'm saying is, see if you can find the director's um, commentary track. Mm. Because on the, on the DVD that I've got, the BFI DVD of The Caretaker, there is a director's commentary track mm. where Clive Donner and um, Alan Bates talk all over the over the movie about how they made it, and um, it's absolutely wonderful. Oh. I, need, I need to listen to that. I need to listen to uh, that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's on YouTube somewhere. You just need to put, you know, the caretaker, Clive Donner, director's commentary. Just you never know. You might you might be lucky. Cool. So um, I think that's. I don't have much else to say about about your reading of it I think it's incredibly promising and um, you know the work to do on the text should be done at the same time as thinking about those the, the physical impact and the the impact on on his function being very very seriously changed by the operation yeah and yeah. to begin to experiment I suppose with with a, a, a different way of moving or slowness um, a carefulness, a, a reaction to to headaches. I mean, you know, if you were living with all this stuff all the time, I, I've had chronic illness at times in my life, and you do adapt radically. You mm. change uh, you, what you know. After a while, you 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 begin to change your behaviour because you know if you do that too quickly, you're going to fall over, and or if you do that too fast, 
you're you're going to have a um, a spasm. So you change and you you know you begin to move differently. Now that's just with you know with a bad back or chronic um, arthritis or something. But if it was to do with a brain thing that, that changed you forever mm. and was never going to go back to normal, you'd you'd have to go through some quite radical uh, changes of habit and uh, changes of reflex and reaction. It would become it would become ingrained. It would become a different a second nature. You know, a different way of being. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But I think uh, I think the the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, these things are more of, of more use to you in rehearsal than fixating on getting the lines right and mm. finding the perfect way to say the lines. Yeah, it's all about because how can the lines the lines can't be disconnected or divorced from the intelligence that they're coming out of the human being. Mm. So find try and find more of the human being, and then trust the lines will flow naturally from them. Mm. Absolutely, that's that's what it all boils down to. That's just the physical. Well, it does. But as I said, as we said before, with Pinter, it can be tempting to get into, you know, oh, I could say it this way, or I could put a bit of leg spin on it and do it that way, or I could, you know, um, and um, all that is slightly too heady, a bit too an- analytic. Mm. Yeah. In my in my experience. Yeah. It's tough, but it's good to know that that is that is that's part of how I think you have well, not only just the Pinter text but I think texts in, in general I suppose or just, just anything yes. and, good, uh, really good really good writing certainly always has that dimension to it yeah absolutely absolutely a lot um, of TV writing doesn't and, and actors have to just kind of find a good way to say the lines mm, have to just um, but, but good writing best. for the theatre especially any writing that has a poetic dimension to it there are always those layers and um, you know the, the, the joy of it is to go go diving in, in the depths and figure out how you uniquely, you know, very, you're very different from me and we're very different from Doug and Doug's very different from uh, Danny Mays and so forth. Mm. You know, we're, we're, the reason why some plays can be done again and again and again is because there's so much that's universal in the writing that many different people playing those parts will reveal many different things that are, that still hold our interest, that can still make it feel like you're hearing it for the first time yeah that's why we go and see six different actors playing Hamlet because yeah. if they're all if they're all good yeah. then they're all going to find that a, a different magic no. yeah I remember speaking to someone on a drama school board who sat, who sat on audition panels year after year after year who hear who, who hear very similar speeches every year of Shakespeare right? Hamlet Iago Othello um, Richard III but she says Bizarrely, every single year they'll hear a speech they've heard a million times before and they'll still hear something different every year. And they'll think, oh, I never thought about it that way. And I said, that, make, that way makes so much more sense than how I saw it before. So I think that's one of the many reasons why I think Pinter's plays will stand the test of time and Shakespeare will be here, I think, until for, for however long the planet turns. <laughs> I'll be here forever, I think. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's that universality. It's the, I don't know whether whether you've done much work with the word archetype, but it, 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 mm. it it's the archetypal nature of, of being a human being. Yeah, um, that doesn't. That's why mythology is so powerful because a story could have been written down twenty thousand years ago and still hit us between the eyes. Like, you know, how the fuck do they know that about me? <laughs> um, and that's that's really the the, the 
the root of, of the whole way of seeing things through archetypes. It's, it's so interesting how something very, very old and apparently ancient can speak to right now, to this moment. Mm. That's um, incredible. Yeah. I think that well, is, listen, I, I better stop, but uh, it's, yeah, been, yeah. it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to say, I think that is a, a, a brilliant point to end, I think, and everything else can... Uh, we talked about so much, and this has been incredibly, incredibly helpful. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time, and uh, That's yeah, a pleasure. yeah, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll get the chance to speak to you again at some point in the future. Well, that's absolutely uh, possible and and fine. Please, please do uh, mm. consider that you can always uh, reach out. Um, I'm going to send you an email and uh, with a couple of couple of things on it, um, mm. and I'll put my uh, I'll put my PayPal on there as well, so you can. Just bung twenty quid in there. Yeah, and um, keep in touch. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, we'll do, man. Uh, thank again, once again, thank you so much. I'll um, I'll keep in touch with uh, uh, the run ahead shouting crowd, and I'll keep those pinter stuff coming and stuff on there. But uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll I'll talk to you again soon. If I have any, I still have so many more questions about pinter. I could talk to you all day about okay. them. I really could. But uh, yeah, well, but we may do. I may do some classes. You know, uh, I've got I've got another couple of jobs to do between now and beginning of June. But yeah, um, I think after that, I mean, please God, there's no more lockdown. But you never know. <laughs> we might we might all find ourselves trapped, needing things to do. So yeah. I think I will do some more um, online yeah um, I'll... classes, act acting classes. Yeah, well, well, count me in. I'll be there. So. All right, mate. nice all to right. meet you. Nice to meet you. Take care, man. And you.